This past week, a group of evangelical leaders produced and published a statement on human sexuality, marriage, and gender identity. While we don't have time this morning to particularly consider the content of that statement, uh, I would encourage you to uh, get out onto the internet and look it up and read it. Um, if you don't have access to the internet, you can surely get a copy from me. Uh, you can go to NashvilleStatement.com. And I'd encourage you to read that. I fully endorse everything that is said there. I think it is helpful and clarifying in our day where we are confused. But what rather I would want to focus on this morning is not so much the content uh, of that message, but the response that the media had to it. Um, just because it's helpful to help understand and tease out this morning uh, the worldviews in which we exist in. To help tease out the kind of world that, that we as Christians live in. And, and so uh, it was met with strong criticism, not really a surprise, uh, from the media. It was truly a firestorm, um, and many major publications wouldn't even talk about it uh, on their main page stuff because they didn't want to draw attention to the statement. While the general response was not surprising, it is again helpful for us to sort of illustrate uh, what non-Christians in our world the people that you rub shoulders with every day in the workplace and uh, in your neighborhoods and in your family, how they perceive and think about biblical truth, how they perceive and think about what God has to say very clearly in his word and particularly about love. So we're going to talk about love this morning, and I found this a very helpful illustration to, to kind of expose and get at the way the world wrongly thinks about love and perhaps how you wrongly think about love. We, in, we live in a culture that prizes love as a virtue above many other virtues. It regularly is talked about and sung about, right? Uh, if you consider the music from different generations represented in this room, I will guarantee you I can find a song which was popular in your generation that was about love. Love is a virtue that is prized in our culture. But yet love is hard to define because in our culture, the one who determines what love is defines it. That is, love is fluid. Love becomes whatever you want. And that, that's really true generally of other things. But here this morning we're thinking particularly of love. This means that you as the individual decides how you will love and what love is and what it isn't. So it's not society that defines, it's not God's word that defines, but rather the individual that defines how to love. What love looks like and how we are to express love. Now, if the individual, the group of individuals, determines what, lo what is loving and what is not, we can begin to quickly see when a subset of society is defining love, we can begin to see the problem with that, right? Particularly because we know that as sinful human beings, we, we really mess up things real easily, uh, right? So when we start trying to define what love is, we can understand our sinful, fallen nature. Well, listen to how one journalist from the Chicago Tribune, responded to the statement on human sexuality. And, and, and so, I just again, this is what he writes. This is just helpful. Uh, he, he begins, I'm not a the theologian. Well, I'm thankful that the brother kind of like, you know, makes very clear there at the beginning. He's not a, 
uh, a theologian, and he makes it very clear. He goes on to write, I'm not even particularly a good Catholic, if we're being honest, but I do believe Jesus preaches an important concept, love. Love, he defines, is something most people can get behind. I'd argue it's something that makes us human and we embrace, and when embraced, excuse me, makes us the best versions of ourselves. The love Jesus encouraged is often distorted in ways that, in my mind, run afoul of what the man was talking about. The Nashville statement is one of those distortions, a declaration that some love is acceptable and some isn't. That some people are acceptable in the eyes of God and some are not. I don't buy that, he writes. I'll never buy that. And if that means I get kicked out of the club, so be it. There are many things that we could say in response to that short statement. And I want to do that individual justice. He was creating the image of God. I want to, you know, I think he is uh, right at some points in this article, but I think he's entirely wrong. I think he's right in that this is true in the way that we often try to define love, right? Uh, we define love based on ourselves, and, and, and notice what he says that when we love right, that it, it makes us a better versions of ourselves. You see, that's what our culture is after, is making you a better version of you. You know, whatever version that is, whatever that looks like for you, our culture is after trying to get you to, to move towards that self-promotion, whatever that idea is. Sadly, in our culture, often those ideas are taken from others. You say, you know, I want to be like that. I want to look like that. I want to think like that. That's what I want to be. But friends, we understand that this is not true. We understand as Christians that, that this cannot be true. Because when we understand and unpack the Bible a little bit, we've, we begin right at the beginning of the Bible. Like, you know, so, so I know that y'all that actually like try to read your Bible, um, you always start in Genesis, so I know you've probably read this. Genesis 3 makes something very clear about ourselves, that there will never be a better version of ourselves, but only a worser and worser version. We could use bad English. That our human depravity, our sin nature, doesn't, doesn't make ourselves better. We can't like get together and try to improve, but we don't understand that we're actually getting worse. So friends, we understand something very clear about ourselves. That Jesus Christ did not come into this world uh, in, in order to help define love in a way that is arbitrary, in a way that is for self-promotion. But rather, Jesus Christ came into the world not to make a better version of you, but to make a new you. A new you modeled after himself. A new you that is modeled after the creator God. A model that is perfect. So how does God make us new? How is it that this new identity transforms then how we love? That is to say that we cannot truly love the way God has commanded us in the scriptures unless we have been born again. We're going to consider this morning the doctrine of regeneration. And I know that's a cool big Bible word. Uh, we've thrown it around a little bit today. Uh, 
And uh, in essence, what that means is that the Holy Spirit has caused new life. Where you were once dead, you are now alive. Once you were spiritually dead and deceit, you were like a corpse. And we considered that a few weeks ago, right? We talked about how you could go out to the cemetery and how you could do a lot of jumping and screaming and shouting and, and dancing, but that nothing is going to happen, right? We hope not. No, nothing's going to happen, right? Uh, nothing will happen, right? And so it is with our souls. They are, the Bible says, dead in their trespasses and sin. But God has caused them to be alive. And so what we're talking about is that sort of what we used to, you know, kind of if you're from the South, you know, so, you know born-again Christian. And we really use that language a ton up here. But, but if you're from the South, you know, a born-again believer, a born-again Christian, that is... What we are speaking about is that you have been regenerate. You have been brought to life. Death no longer reigns in your soul. So that's what we want to think about this morning. Before we begin, let's kind of set our context a bit in First Peter. Uh, we've been walking through the last couple of weeks the, the letter of First Peter. This is first of, this is first of two letters that Peter wrote. Peter was an apostle. Uh, we're going to consider him in a moment because uh, he's a great illustration of, of uh, our depravity. Uh, but Peter is writing to Christians who are persecuted. Uh, they, are, they're, they're facing various trials and, and difficulty. And so he is writing to them to help them understand something. Uh, to help them understand particularly who they are. And so as, you're go, as we're going through this sort of series through 1 Peter, all of the sermon titles are meant to kind of push that forward in your mind. So the first one we considered was uh, Christians are chosen. Christians are elect, right? So we consider that this is what you are. Your this is who you are. And then your identity, who you are, becomes how you will live. So, so Peter has a lot of moral exhortations. Peter has a lot of commands in this letter. A lot of do this, live this way. But I want you to hear right before you hit the snooze button on me this morning and you fall asleep, I want you to hear something very clearly. Because if you start hearing these commands and your little, your little Pharisaic heart starts to get a little warm in you and you start saying, yeah, this is the kind of preaching we need to have, these commands, we need to hear people need to get, no, you need to stop that. Because you will never be able to fulfill the commands of the scriptures unless you have been born again. You can try really, really hard and a lot of people do it and they fall flat on their face. And so if that's you this morning, if you've been struggling in your walk with Christ, if like the moral commands of Scripture have been a stumbling block for you, well, friend, maybe you are in the right place this morning because you need to hear the gospel and be born again. What you need this morning is not to hear work harder, but to hear the work has been done in Christ. That's what you need to hear this morning. And that's what Peter is saying. This is who you are. Who you are defines what you will be, what you will, how you will live. It's who you are. Christians are chosen. Christians are born again, as we'll consider this morning. This is who you are, and who you are defines how you'll live. So our conversion, we'll see here in a moment, produces genuine love and care for others in the context of a Christian community that would otherwise be impossible. Our conversion produces genuine love and care for others in the context of a Christian community 
that would otherwise be impossible. Impossible. So let's consider God's word. First Peter chapter 1. I encourage you to grab that Bible in front of you if you don't have one. Open it up to page 1014. 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. This is God's word to you. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So again, I will repeat what I said earlier that the point of this passage is that our conversion produces genuine love and care for others in the context of a Christian community that would otherwise be impossible. In other words, we would not be able to love, we would not be able to obey, fulfill these commands that Peter has for us if it had not been for our conversion. That, yes, to be clear, we can, the world, non-Christians can love. All right? So if you're not a Christian this morning, welcome. You're glad to be here every week. We, we welcome you here. And we, we, what I'm saying here is not to say that you can't have love or that you can't love others. What I'm saying is that to have the, what I'm saying is that your love will always be a faint reflection of the love that God calls for in his word. So to be clear, yes, we can love, but not to the fullest way that I think Peter is commanding here. In the scripture. So the purpose of this sermon is to exhort Christians to love others in the context of a Christian community out of their new identity in Christ. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see sort of the clear exhortation, love others, right? I mean, you know, we could just kind of sit down after this point. Uh, the, the sermon is this. It's right there, right here, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here's the command, verse 22. Love one another. There you go. That's the point of the passage. Love one another. Now we're going to see that Peter grounds that command first by laying the basis of our love. He shows us the basis of our love for others. He tells us why we are to love one another then he will shift and tell us the nature of our love for others. He tells us how we are to love others in a Christian community. So first, why, and then how. First, the basis, and then what it kind of flows out of. And, and just to be clear, as you're reading through 1 Peter with me each week, as you're spending your time in 1 Peter uh, on your own, just notice this is how Peter does it. This is how he lays out the letter. 
Now, Paul, what Paul will often do in his letters, he will have maybe three chapters of, of, of sort of foundational work. He'll kind of lay the foundation for three chapters. And then off of that foundation, kind of build a house. Right? He'll build the Christian community off of that and say, in light of that, in light of what we talked about here foundationally, here's what the house is to look like. And Peter kind of does it a little bit differently. Peter goes back and forth. He'll lay some foundation. He builds a little house. Lays some foundation and builds a little house. Lays a little bit more and builds a little bit more. And so let's just look. I'll, I'll show you some examples here. First, verses 3 through 9. Sort of lays a foundation, right? Sort of lays a foundation. Then he shifts. Excuse me, verses 3 through uh, 12. And then he shifts in verses uh, 13 through 21. Right? So he laid a foundation. This is who you are. You've been redeemed. You've been born again. And he talks about all this, this great, great inheritance we have. And then in light of that inheritance, he says, be holy. So he grounds the exhortation to be holy in the foundation of our conversion. So we do not want to turn these moral exhortations into just sort of following some commands to please God. But we want to see that these things flow out of a transformed life. First, the basis of our love for others. We are to love because we have been born again. Our love for others is generated, germinated from the seed of God's word. As the word of God is made active in our souls by the spirit of God, we love. That's, what, that's kind of what's produced from all the work that God is doing in us. He is producing in us. So Peter here in this first verse here, he gives us really just sort of two perspectives that seem kind of weird and seem to run kind of counter to what I'm saying. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Right Now you're like, wait a minute. You just said that our obedience has nothing to do with it. No, 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 no. What he's saying is, is that your obedience demonstrates your conversion. What Peter is doing here is giving us the perspective, the human perspective in salvation. It's what we call sanctification. Uh, the, the process we considered a couple weeks ago, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it is he who works in us. Right? So understand that God has caused this, but there's some responsibility, human responsibility. Right? So, this is, so, so to be clear, you may have heard a, a theology called let go and let God, which means you just sort of are passive in your uh, sanctification. You're passive in becoming holy. You sort of sit back, you know, God does everything and, and sort of washes over you, and, you know, and that's... But what Peter is saying here is that there is a human responsibility. So he sort of starts with a human perspective and then he shifts to the divine perspective. He begins by saying, like, y'all need to be getting to work, and because you're obedient to the truth, then you begin to love more and more. Because you're obedient to the truth, you begin to produce love in your life. So this isn't sort of, you know, sit back and I'll just become a really loving person. But it's through your obedience as you begin to understand. And, and what truth does he have in mind? Well, I think he has in mind the gospel. In short, it means this. That the more you trust and understand your identity in Christ, 
the more you rest and understand what God has done in Christ, then you will begin to love. Love flows out of God's work in you. It flows from that. It's not something that you produce, but it's something that God is producing through your obedience. Now, let's shift uh, to verse 23. And we're going to come back in the, at the end here to all the sort of love stuff, and we can talk about love a little bit. But I just want to lay a good foundation for you uh, before we do that, uh, because I want to squash the Pharisee in the room, and I want to build up the, uh, the one who doesn't feel worthy uh, to stand before God this morning. So, so, so if you're a Pharisee this morning, I hope to just kind of beat you down a little bit and, and, and maybe just blow your, you know, your big head up. And then those that are weak and feel like, you know, God uh, would never love me. God would never care for me. You don't understand the sin that's in my life. You don't understand, you know, kind of what's hanging over me. Um, well, I just want to apply a little gospel to that and understand that it's all right in Christ. So first, or secondly here in verse 23, he says, since. He says, love, since. He says, love, because. But notice he says, your love is connected to what? You have been born again. What he, here, what he is doing here is grounding again this command to love in our new identity. Look what he says, you have, you are, this is who you are. You are new creation. You are new. You have been born again. And then he grounds this new birth in the word of God. So again, the premise is this. The word of God creates the people of God by the spirit of God. The spirit of God takes the word of God as it is preached and he carries it to transform people's hearts. This is why Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. So it is, people aren't saved uh, passively, but actively as the word of God is preached. We've considered this before in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. Where in Ezekiel 36, God talks about and reveals to the prophet Ezekiel this whole idea of regeneration, Right? This is where he lays the foundation of the new covenant. He says, listen, I will cause you to be born. He doesn't use the language new, born again. But he says, I'll give you a new heart. Right? I'll get, I will take that heart of stone and I'll give you a new heart. A heart of flesh. And, and you'll be able to obey my commandments because of this new heart. Then he shifts and what does he do? He takes Ezekiel out to a valley. He says, see all these dead people? That's my people. Look at them. They're dead. There's some dead people out there. Look at them all. They're dead. Now, this is what I want you to do, Ezekiel. I want you to preach my word to them. I want you to declare my word to them and see what happens. And so Ezekiel does. He, he proclaims, and what happens? The Spirit of God goes and accompanies the word of God. And what happens at the end is there is the people of God. There is this vast army created by what? And so he's giving Ezekiel confidence that like, when you preach and the Spirit accompanies it, it's going to create life. And this is, what, this is exactly what Peter is saying in this here. He says that you have been born again of what? Of the Word of God. The Word of God has created life in you. It is not anything that you have generated. And so he uses some illustrations for us. He, he kind of gives us a word picture. He says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. 
So you can see a little theology of the word of God here. That the word of God is what creates the people of God. That the word of God is what is preached. And, and he says that down in verse 25. So just to, just to follow, I'm kind of jumping back and forth. But verse 25, and the word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So again, if you're like, preacher, what are you talking about up there? All these different components. This is what he's saying. Okay, He's saying the word of God preached by the man of God is used by the spirit of God to create the people of God. That's what he's saying in this section. So to be clear here, Peter is digressing a bit, getting away from his exhortation to love to kind of lay that foundation. And Peter here is making the point clear that if someone claims to have been born again and does not love, well then they have not genuinely been born again. He contrasts two types of seed, doesn't he? Imperishable and perishable. He says, look, there are kind of two, two types of seed. There are ones who, that, that have been born again of seed that is perishable and those that are not perishable. Those are those that perish. So again, he's speaking here of sort of human language, similar to what Jesus does in the sower of the seed, right? There was really just two types of soil, right? There was the good soil and then there was the rest. And only one germinated and produced fruit. And so Peter is saying here there is only one type of seed that will produce new life. And that is the abiding and living word of God. So he calls it an imperishable seed. And then further, look what he says about this seed. He says that the seed is living and abiding. It's alive. And this is so true, right? The Bible is alive. It is a living document. It is alive because the Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God. This is why you can be stone cold, hard hearted, and hear God's Word and come to life. None of our conversion stories is, I went Now, you might kind of have a version of that where, where it maybe looks like that, but I guarantee you God was already at work well before that. The Spirit of God was working. He was causing conviction. He was weighing upon you, and it was the Word of God that was doing that, the truth of Scripture. The Word of God is living and enduring. The word of God here, it abides. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't diminish. God's word. Now just consider for a moment this morning that we are reading a passage of scripture. We are reading words that were written over 2,000 years ago. Just consider that for a moment. Just kind of what you're spending your time doing today. You're, I mean, where else in our society does a group of people gather around on a regular basis to open up words that are thousands of years old? I mean, consider for a moment. I know this, you know, we got a few folks in here. The younger folks don't know what a newspaper is, but the, uh, the older folks do. Um, and, and I know a lot of you senior adults, you know what newspapers are. You probably still get them at your house. I saw one carrying around one earlier today. But, but I guarantee you this about your newspaper that you do not keep your newspaper around for weeks and open up to the weather page and say, hmm, I wonder what the weather's going to be like today. It's not right today regardless, but, but you understand, right? Right? Understand, he is saying that it's living and enduring. 
newspapers fade away. It's old news, right? I mean, who reads yesterday's newspaper, right? The headlines are old. And, and particularly in our culture, where like news is like this, newspapers are just antiquated and outdated. I mean, if you're sitting and opening a newspaper uh, about something that happened yesterday, this morning, oh, you're like a dinosaur, right? I mean, you're like old school. Or consider this, this morning if you have like a DVR at home, you know, a DVR where you like record shows. I guarantee you that you do not DVR the news so that you can binge watch it months later. I guarantee you, you are not DVRing the news so that you can watch it next week and catch up on the latest news. Because it won't be late. It'll be very late at that point, right? And so we understand that in our culture, news fades, it travels fast, and dies quickly. Who really cares about it? But yet this morning, we have gathered around to consider words that are thousands of years old. A newspaper that is crumbling. Good news, Peter says. Because it is living and enduring. In fact, the word of God will outlast all of its critics. In fact, we can consider this morning some of the critics we began with. Oh, those, those, those folks will fade away, but the word of God will continue to march on. This is why we can sing the hymn we sang early, How Firm a Foundation. The newspaper is not a firm foundation. The news of today gone tomorrow, but the word of God continues forever. It does not perish, though we perish. The word of God continues And so let's consider as we, in light of who we are, that we have been born again, that if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, that that is evidence of new birth. Your faith, your trust, your life of repentance is evidence of the Spirit's work of conversion. It's evidence in your life, and so also is our love. And so let's consider then now the command to love. First, the nature of our love. I just want to look at who is our audience? Who are we to love? It's implied in this passage, but I think it's clear. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another. Two things there centered around the command to love. First, brotherly, and then secondly, one another. If you want to just sort of grow in your understanding of the Christian community, um, in the back of your Bible should be a concordance. Uh, You don't have to go there now, but maybe this afternoon. Look up all of the usages of one another in the New Testament, and you will see the rich beauty of the Christian community, uh, that we have been called to this one another, uh, this outward uh, reflection. So the context here is Christians within the context of a Christian community that is a local church, a local body of believers, right? So to be clear, uh, the command here isn't to love every Christian in this world equally, right? It is to love the way the Bible commands us here is to love brotherly, to love affectionately, to love persistently, to love from a pure heart those whom we are in a Christian community together. So if you are a member of this congregation, um, Lord willing, you are regenerate. Um, therefore, you need to love those others. In Now, this doesn't mean you don't love other Christians. It clearly doesn't mean you don't love your neighbor. Like Those are just sort of other commands that we're not dealing with this morning. We're dealing with the Christian community, the gathering of the saints together in this particular body. How do we love? 
And so the command is fulfilled through this sacrificial loving that exists in this community. Community creates safe boundaries and a safe environment for the kind of love we're going to look at. Just like we cannot genuinely love our spouses outside of the covenant of marriage. Marriage is a picture of how you can love safely in right? So that you can give yourself in that. So let's look, I'm going to look through a few of these. First, we love sincerely. We love sincerely. Notice what he writes. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That is, our love is to be sincere. It is, our love is meant and meaningful. That is, our love is not accidental. The love that Peter is describing here isn't by accident. We don't fall into it. It's purposeful. It is sincere or genuine. It's real. It's not fake. It's sincere. You, for example, uh, could love someone sincerely by purposely doing them spiritual good. I think that's what Peter has in mind here. That is that you have the purpose in mind that you're going to do someone else good, spiritual good. That is that you're going to demonstrate care for them. And again, I just want to be very clear. We're not taking our cues from the world, right? We joke often about it, but we don't go like up and down the aisles at Hallmark looking at cards to figure out the way we should love. I mean, if you're doing that, your love is going to be so diminished and skewed. As we'll see in a moment, it's probably self-love. And so we could give ourselves, for example, to encourage someone with the scripture. I think that's the kind of sincere love that he's talking about. So in our relationships, we are constantly other-oriented purposely looking at other Christians and saying, how can I help them? How can I encourage them? How can I help them along in their Christian faith? And so our questions will be garnered around genuine love, like how are you doing spiritually? Not how is your favorite sports team? How are you doing uh, fighting temptation? Not what do you think about this weather? The words on our lips aren't just worldly advice. Be a better you, but are rather taken from the word of God and saying, look, look, saint, are you struggling in your faith today? Believe on Christ and he will say. For in his word, he writes, since you have been born again. We encourage one another with the scriptures, not with our own cool advice, not our own wisdom, but the wisdom of the Lord. So you can meet up with someone regularly and discuss a passage of Scripture or a particular biblical topic important to your sanctification. Friends, that's what we want to do. We want to gather together weekly, but then we want to kind of spurse out in our lives and we want to be meeting together, getting together, and not just talking about the weather, not just talking about, you know, the Ravens are probably going to do terrible again this year, right? But rather saying, how can I do this sister? How can I do this brother spiritual good? How can I encourage them? How can I warn them? How can I build into them their life? What can I do? And again, we do it with the word of God because it's the word of God that imparts life. Also, Peter writes that we are to love brotherly. Brotherly. Again, we begin to see the kind of community that is created by the gospel. The gospel creates a community of brothers and sisters. 
Now, I know in our culture, at some places and some points, particularly in the southern states of America, you call everyone a brother. You call everyone a sister. Uh, in the streets of Baltimore, uh, it might be the same. Hey, what's up, brother? You know, those kind of things. Uh, depending on where you are, you might just generally call everyone a brother or sister. But what you understand is all of that sort of cultural stuff that we see is really born out of a rich understanding of the Bible. That we are brothers and sisters. And we don't just say it because we're like trying to be kind. We say it, you know, we don't say it because like, I forgot his name, uh, brother. Yeah, hey, what's up, brother? Um, right? But because generally this is a reminder to me, a reminder to you, he's a brother. He's a sister. And even more than that, it is a reminder that someone died for him. Doesn't that change your perspective when you are ready to kind of lash out? When you're ready to speak some things or prove a brother in evil? And you're reminded that that brother was bought by the blood of Christ and he answers to a master greater than you? So brotherly love changes the way we care for one another. We genuinely see people not only create an image of God, but bought by the blood of Christ. As Peter says earlier, that you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And if that is true of us as believers, then how does that transform us? You might be able to deny a biological brother or sister love, but not so in the family of God. There is a preeminence to our relationship with other Christians. We are to give ourselves to that in brotherly love. He goes on to say that we are to love from a pure heart. Peter wants to make very clear, doesn't he, the kind of love he has in mind. A love that's sincere, a love that's genuine, a love that is brotherly in its affection, in its care, and also a love that is pure. I think what Peter is after here in this verse is that what are your motives in your love? What are your motives in your love? One who is truly converted loves the way God loves them in Christ. This builds off of the idea of brotherly love bought by the blood of Christ in the sense that their identity is not tied to themselves or their worth or their value to you. You see, our culture loves in a way that they know that you'll get love in return. Scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We have love that is reciprocal. We love our spouses in ways because we know that our spouse will always love us. They're like, you know, we, we, we treat our friends like a puppy. You know, our puppy always loves. Like, you know, you leave, that thing is like, you come back and that thing's like excited to see you and everything like that. And so you love it because you know it's always going to love you. Friends, Christian love, we understand that sometimes you love in context where uh, you don't feel the love coming back. But you still love. More than that, we do not love out of the because of some worth in that individual. You know, because they've done something for us to benefit us, or because, you know, they just are lovable. Look, if you're new to Christianity, I just want to clue you in on something. Maybe someone didn't tell you on the front end. Christians are the most unlovable people in the world. Because they're sinners. Just like you. And so I'm not saying this morning, and Peter is not saying this morning, that this is easy. This is going to be like a cakewalk. 
No, it's going to be hard. But we are to love with the motive of doing others good from a pure heart, from pure motives. Again, he is grounding this in the fact that you have been born again. You have been made pure. And so love with the motive to do others good. What are your expectations of others? You know, I find often other Christians have these ginormous escalated expectations of others, but yet have very low expectations for themselves. Friends, that should not be the case. Because how does God see you? What kind of expectations does he have for you in your life? Do you meet others and offer others the same grace that God has offered you in Christ? Or are you always raising their expectations on how they should be behaving, what they should be doing, rather than leaning into the grace of God, being merciful? Look, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall. So are we there to help pick someone up or trample on them as they fall? Friends, let it not be that we trample on others when we fall, but rather, as James exhorts us, let us encourage one another. Let's build one another. Let's pick one another up. Peter goes on to write in verse 22 that we are to love constantly. He says, love one another earnestly or constantly. Again, love is not fickle, here today, gone tomorrow, but continually grows. Our love is something that is earnest, something that is constantly getting bigger. And so if you've been in this for a while, if you, it has been mere, mere days, decades, or years, whatever it's been, your love for other Christians should be growing. You should actually be surprised, I think. As you look back at the way you loved at the beginning and what you love now. Our love should be growing deep and wide. We talk about this all the time, and, 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 and you might remember that song, Deep and Wide and all that. But, but, but what we're talking about in deep and wide is that the depth of our love. This is what I mentioned and alluded to earlier when we talk about the kind of conversations we have. Listen. Put your ear out and listen to the conversations that are had often in this room. And they're surface. They, they, they never go deep. They never go beyond just, you know, how's life, you know, the kind of typical chit-chat, water cooler kind of conversations we generally have in our lives. But as Christians, we want to open ourselves up and go deep. We want to create the kind of relationships in our lives where we can go deep with one another. We're going to be like, yo, how are you doing loving your wife? How are you doing fighting your temptations? How are you doing in your struggle with pornography? How are you doing in this area of your life? Like, those are like some intimate questions that, that are really hard to answer. We want to go deep in our relationships. We also want to go wide. That is, we want to love people who are not like us. The natural default position in our culture is to love people who are like us. We hang out with you know, people who look like us, think like us, dress like us, and talk like us, right? That's, you know, so if you're wearing a suit this morning, you're probably, you know, not naturally going to hang out with me because I don't wear a suit, right? And so you're, you're going to be inclined to maybe hang out with the dude wearing a suit. Uh, or, you know, we see that divide in racial, right? Uh, black folks hang out with black folks, white folks, white, Asian with Asian, right? That's natural. That's to be expected. And that's okay. There's nothing sinful on the surface with that. But our relationships should go beyond that. 
our relationships and our love should be demonstrated not only with those that are like us, but those that are different from us, that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, those who come from different walks of life in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world. Our love should be wide. It should be constant. Peter concludes this by looking at the negative in verses, verse chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. And we don't have a lot of time to tease out much of what he says here, but he does say this. He says that worldly love is selfish love. And he says here, put it off. He says, take it off. Let's put that thing down. And so what Peter is saying very clearly, and hopefully would be encouragement to you this morning, is that he is writing to people who struggle with these things. Who struggle with malice. Who struggle with deceit who struggle with hypocrisy, who struggle with envy, and who struggle with slander. He's writing to Christians who are struggling in these ways. So the Christian life isn't a life of perfection. It's not a life where, you know, like, it's all rose, it's all beautiful, you know, we got baptized, everything's good. No, no, no. The Christian life is a constant putting off, putting to death, stomping, killing, murdering the old man, and putting on the new. And so Peter is saying, put that junk away. Put that stuff away. And he fleshes out just sort of some negative ways in which we used to live, in which all of them aimed at selfish gain. So we could just look at them, and we don't have time, but like malice. At the heart of malice is selfish gain. We are angry with others because we don't get what we want. Deceit, lying. The goal of lying is to promote self. Hypocrisy, right? Self-promotion. We paint a picture to the world that looks pretty, but inwardly we're dead. We're, we're like the Pharisees. We're whitewashed tombs. We look amazing on the outside. We got the right clothes, the right makeup, the right car. We got it all together. We got the right kids. But inwardly we are dead Envy and slander, all of them, again, have self-promotion. What Peter is saying is this. Listen, I bet you at home in a closet somewhere in your house is either picture, a picture or, or perhaps the actual articles that you used to wear. That is, I bet you we could go in your closet and pull out a picture from 30 years ago. And I bet you you aren't wearing the same clothes you wore 30 years ago. If you are, there's some friends here who will help you. But we change clothes, right? We change styles, right? Sometimes we don't even recognize we're changing styles, right? We change styles as the world around us. We pick up the styles of the world, right? We do not wear the styles that we wore when we were teenagers, right? We do not wear the kind of clothes. Now, there's some grown men who are confused about uh, the need to be wearing, like, skinny jeans and things like that. Um, you know, 30 and 40-year-olds wearing skinny jeans. And pastors, too. Like, what the heck is all about? Anyways, we change clothes. We wear different clothes. And what Peter is saying is that as Christians, you have put on new clothes. You have put on new robes, robes of righteousness, and therefore you need to put off them old clothes. Do not go to the closet and put that on, right? Uh, do not do that. He's saying, don't put that on. That's not you anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
You are new. This is not who you are. You look weird. You look strange. You aren't that anymore. You are this, a born-again believer. You are a new creation. And so again, this comes full circle. That what we are defines how we will live. And as Christians, we are constantly putting off, putting to death that old way and putting on the new. Love for others is what marks genuine Christians. Jesus says clearly that my disciples will be known for what? Love. It will be their love for others that will be the evidence of their conversion. And as we contemplate the glories of Christ, as we contemplate what God has done for us in Christ, that this ignites our loves for others. Christ's sacrifice inspires us to love the way He loved. We love as He loved. We look to Him as our model. As an elegant flower, a serene sunset, or an intoxicating scent inspires an artist to paint or a musician to compose. So those who have experienced the love of God in Christ love the way He has loved. Those who have experienced this love have hearts overflowing with love, filled with love, running over as a result of Christ's love for us. The love of God affects us in ways that we cannot even begin to describe. It causes our hearts that once hated to turn in love, a racist turn to care for those whom he once hated. Friend, that can only happen through the power of the gospel. And as we dwell on the love of Christ, of God in Christ, we are moved to love others. Friend, this morning as we approach the throne of grace, our cold hearts toward one another are warmed by the fire of grace. As we consider what God has given us in Christ for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give praise to you and ask that your word would abide in us. Lord, we pray that a better sermon is heard than the one preached. We pray that this word that we have heard from you would create life where there is rather death. That those that are living lives of hypocrisy, living lives of sin, thinking that everything is okay, we pray this morning that your word would breathe life into them and they would run to the cross of Christ. We pray that genuine faith would be had, that believers would be spurred on to love and good works. Father, we pray your spirit would dwell in us this week as we seek to love others the way you have loved us in Christ. We give you glory and praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.